Amen. Thank you, Jake and Emily. Thank you for, again, sharing our veterans and our active duty service members. And we are thankful for the freedom even to come and to be able to gather like we are today and to be able to worship the Lord so freely. We have much on our hearts and minds after the recent election. We are praying for our country. Our country needs the Lord. And our country needs, needs strong churches, and strong churches are made up of strong families, strong fathers and mothers who guide and lead their homes in the ways of the Lord. John chapter number 12, John chapter number 12, and we will go back down to John 12, and I know I skipped our, our scripture reading for sake of time, but let's go to John 12 and looking at verse number 12, we'll see here this transition from the meal at the home of Simon, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were, where Mary sacrificed the ointment, the alabaster flask of ointment, of expensive, rare ointment. And we've spent a couple of weeks looking at the sacrifice, the contrast between her and Judas. And then in John 12 and verse 12, on the next day, much people that were come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young ass, sat thereon, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. The people, therefore, that was with him when he called Lazarus out of his grave and raised him from the dead, bear record. For this cause the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. We see, first of all, in this passage, we see the fulfillment of, of prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is now entering into Jerusalem, the final week of his earthly ministry. Yes, he would be crucified. He would rise again from the dead. He would have 40 days of ministry before he ascended back into heaven. But this is the final week of his earthly ministry, and we're only in John 12. And so we will realize as we go through the next several chapters that we go all the way until the end of the book of John, John 21, to see those final days, and then after the resurrection, uh, those 40 days of Jesus' ministry. So John, as we can tell, spends about half of his gospel on just the Passion Week, as we often refer to it, and the crucifixion, resurrection, and those 40 days after Christ rose from the dead. That's the focus of John's gospel here. And we see this next day reference here in verse number 12, and we can't help but look at the prophecy of Jesus Christ that's fulfilled here at the triumphal entry. I realize this is not Palm Sunday. I realize this is a text that is often referred to in the months of March or April in, in Palm Sunday. But nevertheless, this is where God has brought us as we've been studying through the book of John and this event is so significant, it is one of the few events that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11, 
Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, and Luke 19, 29 through 38 also record this event. So four eyewitness accounts, all four perspectives complement and supplement one another as the inspired, revealed Word of God. 100% accurate, though there may seem to be some additional material, or in the case of the, the donkey and the colt, there's even some who tried to explain what seems to be maybe a, a contradiction, but obviously there is not. Uh, the donkey, the colt, uh, there's a reasonable explanation. Christ rode on the colt, the donkey colts, and it's possible that there was also a colt that was pulled along, that was walking along. But no contradiction, no inaccuracies. This is the revealed, inspired, 100% accurate Word of God. All four accounts give us a very unique perspective on this incredible event in the life of Christ. There is a fulfillment of prophecy that we have to bring into context here. And I don't want to confuse us too much, but we know from John 12 and verse 1, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. So, as we look at the other passages, as we compare the Gospels and compare Scripture with Scripture, in understanding Good Friday, as we often refer to it as the day of Christ's crucifixion, it's possible that the sixth day is the Sunday before Christ's crucifixion, which would put the triumphal entry on a Monday, not a Sunday. Now, we can go through and we can argue in different commentators, they they, they try to explain the timeline. But we understand that Jesus observed the final Passover of his earthly ministry with the disciples on what is probably Thursday evening. Being a Galilean, and many of the Galileans, uh, many of the disciples being Galileans, it's very likely because the Galileans would uh, often celebrate the Passover on Thursday night, the night uh, before uh, the night preceding, it would not be unusual for the Galileans to gather and for the Lord to have his final Passover meal, out of which we have the Lord's table, communion. Okay, we don't celebrate the Passover like the Jews, but we do have communion, one of the ordinances of the church. As a good Baptist church, we believe in two ordinances, baptism by immersion and communion, the Lord's table, which we will celebrate which we will observe, Lord willing, next Sunday night. And out of that Passover meal, we understand the ordinance of the church as the early church practiced, and we refer to it as communion of the Lord's table. So if we count those six days, Jesus would have arrived in Bethany sometime on Saturday, which would have been a Sabbath day. So we have to consider the Sabbath of Saturday and the restrictions of that particular day. Would they have been able to conduct the meal where Mary was, or Martha, excuse me, Passover lamb was being slain for the feast of unleavened bread, for the feast of the Passover? At the very moment that Jesus was being slain for the sins of the world, for our sins, was when the Passover lamb was being slain for the Passover celebration that night. Of course, the Passover is the symbol, the type is the image of going back to Egypt where the blood was put on the doorposts. 
And the death angel came and passed over all of the homes that had the blood on the doorposts. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, the great hymn says. We sing that song. And that was a foreshadowing, a picture, a type, an image of what Christ would do as he shed his blood as the Passover lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. He recognized Christ as that Passover Lamb. And so we see the timing without getting caught up in all the details. We see the timing as this Passover feast is taking place in Jerusalem as hundreds and thousands of people are gathering to the temple and to Jerusalem. As talk of Jesus is spread around, as talk of Lazarus and Jesus' raising of Lazarus is being spread throughout the crowd as The religious leaders are looking for an opportunity to murder Christ and to murder even Lazarus. We see that God is orchestrating his redemption plan. And that God is overruling and overseeing and providentially working. And Jesus is on God's timetable and he will fulfill God's perfect will. And man in his evil is seeking to murder Christ. And yet God is providing the sacrifice for my sins, for your sins, for our sins, so that we might be forgiven, that we might be justified, that God's wrath might be propitiated, that we, through faith in Christ, confession of our sins, repenting of our sins, we can have salvation. God is working out his redemption plan. As the Pharisees, as the religious leaders are in their hypocrisy, preparing this Passover feast and the celebration throughout the the city and in the temple. The religious leaders are in the background looking for an opportunity, saying, even if you know where Jesus is, tell us so we can arrest him, so we can take him to execute him. We know in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse number 7, we read there, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. The focus is on the Passover. It's a feast. It's a great celebration. There is a hearkening back to God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But right there in their midst coming to Jerusalem is Jesus the Messiah who wants to be their Savior if they will just repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in him. And we know that God in his providence and his redemption plan, that week Christ would be the Passover lamb for the sins of the world. There were three groups of people there that day as Jesus prepares to enter into Jerusalem for one last time in his earthly ministry. There's the Passover visitors from outside Judea. They're referenced in verse 12 and verse 18 of John 12. There's also the local people who had witnessed the raising of Lazarus and had been talking about that all throughout town, wondering if Jesus was going to come to the Passover. There's a third group. This is the religious leaders. They're kind of in the background looking, hoping that someone will come to them that someone will share where Jesus is, and they're looking for that opportunity to take him, to murder him. The religious leaders and their hypocrisy and their malice. Oh yeah, they have their pomp and their circumstance. They have their respect 
from even probably many in the crowd, and yet their hearts are evil and corrupt. And how often isn't that the case, even in our culture today? There's all these niceties, there's all this grandeur, there's all this pomp and circumstance, there's all this wealth, there's a party, there's a celebration, and yet there is despicable evil in the midst of all that or even in the background. And here's the Pharisees, as we just read down there in verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, Perceive ye how ye prevail nothing. Behold, the world has gone after him. Frustrated, and we'll talk about that here in a few moments, but they're even a little frustrated because there's so much talk and there's so much going on and this triumphal entry has just taken place and they're beginning to murmur among themselves. So here's Jesus. He enters Jerusalem and he's riding on a donkey. And this is exactly in fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah 9 in verse number 9. It is even quoted here in this passage. Zechariah 9 in verse number 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. We know from the parallel passages in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, we know that Jesus had sent the disciples in and they had found this donkey and they had asked the owner that if they could borrow it because the Lord has need of it. And in his providence, God had prepared even that donkey to be used in God's service. Now we know that there was a donkey that Balaam was also writing, and that donkey spoke because Balaam was a stubborn false teacher who was trying to curse Israel. But it's a reminder that if God can use a donkey, surely God can use us if we're willing, if we're submissive, if we humble ourselves, if we allow God to work in us and to use us, if we depend upon God and his strength, God wants to use us in humble service for him. God's providence, that donkey was there, was prepared. Once they knew that it was the Lord who wanted to use that donkey, they willingly gave that donkey to the disciples. They brought it back, and Jesus sat on that donkey and entered into Jerusalem. Remember, there was a lot of talk. There was some fanfare in a sense. Jesus now is coming on this donkey. Jesus wanted to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9 and verse number 9. He wanted to force even the religious leaders to act during the Passover so that he would be that Passover lamb slain for the sins of the world at the same time that that Passover, which was speaking of the Messiah Christ, that so many of them missed that day. The religious leaders, they didn't want to stir up the people during the Passover. They were afraid that the Romans would be, would be brought in, their, their, their attention would be brought to the stir of the people in Jerusalem, and the Romans might interfere. So the religious leaders are trying to balance, because remember, they want to keep their power. They want to keep their control. They want to keep their wealth and the money that they are gaining from exploiting the people, and they want to continue to rule over the people with their man-made laws and commandments that were heaped upon the true law of God. 
But Christ was forcing their hand by obeying the Father's will and timing for becoming the Passover lamb. You say, well, why was Christ riding on a donkey? A donkey doesn't seem to be that great of an animal for a king for a triumphal entry. We might think of a, of a horse, a stallion, and all of the strength of that horse. Maybe some uh, other kind of animal, but especially maybe a horse in that day, but a donkey? But we have to understand that in that day, in Bible times, a donkey was considered the beast of kings. That's unusual for us. We think of a donkey as kind of dumb and kind of noisy and kind of gets in the way and stirs up trouble. But the donkey in Bible times was the beast of kings. So for Christ to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey was to enter in triumph. It was not unusual for a Roman general or emperor returning from a great victory on the battlefield to ride into town on a donkey. Many times also with all the pomp and circumstance of a victorious parade, sometimes carrying with them or walking with them, harnessed, tied up, prisoners of war. Sometimes even a Roman emperor or Roman general would enter into town on the donkey and would be holding the head, the bloody head of some conquered king, considered a beast, an animal for royalty, for victory. So Christ entered in Jerusalem, entered into Jerusalem as the king, the king of Israel. And people recognized that. They cried out in the words of Psalm 118, in verse 26, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Psalm 118 in verse 26. Psalm 118 is part of the Hallel, which is a group of psalms. Psalm 113 through 118 is called the Hallel. This was a group of psalms that were sung by the temple choir each morning of the Feast of Tabernacles and also was sung in association with the Feasts of Dedication and of the Passover. So they're crying out, from the very words of the psalm, prophetic words, speaking of the Messiah from Psalm 118 and verse 26. We read in Matthew 21 and verse number 8, And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They laid down palm branches, hence the title Palm Sunday because of the triumphal entry and the palm branches that were laid down. Palm branches were a, a symbol of national hope for a Messianic liberator. We also read in Matthew 21 in verse number 8 that they laid down their garments. They would take off their outer garments, their coats, and they would lay them on the ground as the pathway, in the pathway of the donkey of the conquering king. They cried out, Hosanna. Hosanna meaning give salvation now. Here they are, crying out, Hosanna. Crying out, blessed. The word blessed here is not the word blessed that we see in Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. This word blessed or blessed means to speak well of, to praise. 
Again, quoting from Psalm 118, there's the reference to the daughter of Zion, referring to the people of Jerusalem. One commentator wrote this, this psalm was compassed or composed, excuse me, this psalm was composed originally for the first celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles after the completion of the sacred temple. The words of the 25th verse were sung during that feast when the altar of burnt offering was solemnly compassed. That is, once on each of the first six days of the feast and seven times on the seventh day, this psalm was sung or read. This seventh day was called the Great Hosanna, and not only the prayers for the feast, but even the branches of trees, including the myrtles, which were attached to the palm branch, were called Hosannas. Everything about this parade, so to speak, this triumphal entry, was significant. It had meaning. It had historical meaning, it had religious meaning, and it had messianic meaning. There is fulfilled prophecy here. There is significance to this triumphal entry that signifies Christ as the Messiah, the Messiah King. But what was Christ bringing? Was he bringing a political agenda? Was he bringing political power? Was he bringing a social gospel, social empowerment, fame, and fortune? No, he wasn't. But he was bringing salvation. Not from the Romans. Not salvation from the Roman political oppression. But he was bringing salvation. Sin. See, the greatest need that day is the greatest need right now. Forgiveness of our sins. Recognition of Christ as the Messiah, as the supreme Lord of lords and King of kings. We need now humility and reverence and submission to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But there are but each of us right now are called to recognize him as Savior and Lord. And there were some that day who are laying down the palm branches they were laying their garments in the streets, their coats, and they were crying out, Hosanna. They were crying out, Blessed. But they didn't want to submit to Christ as their Savior, as the ruler of their life, as their all in all, as their preeminent one whom they must seek first. Above all else, they wanted him to be a political leader, to throw off the Roman Empire, to sweep in a Jewish kingdom and give them power and give them fame and give them wealth. When Christ was coming in, and in Luke 19, in verse 41, we read that Jesus wept as he rode that donkey. As hosannas were said, as blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord is spoken. Why is Jesus weeping? Because he's broken for the sin of the people. He's broken for the hypocrisy of so many that day. He's even broken, I would think, for the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who in their religious pride are wanting to murder him. He's broken over our sin that would nail him to that cross where he would die for our sin and be raised 
that death would no longer have the victory, that sin would no longer have the victory. See, this is the only public demonstration or presentation of Jesus in a kingly or in a royal fashion. This is the only time where Jesus allows himself to be presented in this way, in a parade or a celebration type of way. But it wasn't for pomp and circumstantial empowerment or political agendas or political power. It was for us. It was for fulfilling God's will and God's redemption plan. Where once those people, many of them putting down palm branches and putting down garments, celebrating Christ as he comes in to the city, some of those very same people at the end of the week, crucify him, the hypocrisy, the religious leaders sitting in the background wanting to find an opportunity where they can pull him from the public eye and take him and murder him, execute him. But Christ is completely in control. God is completely in control in his providence, in his sovereignty, in the fulfillment of the Father's will. Jesus Christ is entering into Jerusalem in that triumphal entry. And yes, there is the announcement that he is king and that he is the Messiah. But there is an announcement of a need for repentance of one's sins. For submitting to Jesus Christ for forgiveness for seeing him as the Savior, not as a political Savior, not as someone to come in and to throw off the Roman Empire. And for Judas, as we looked at last week, it was a frustration to him. He wanted to be the right-hand man in the kingdom. He wanted to be the one who had the money bag. He wanted to be the one who experienced the wealth and the glory of the kingdom. Surely, Judas thought, Jesus would be that one who exalt me into the place that I deserve and I belong. And Judas, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day, Judas was disappointed and he was bitter and he was angry. And he failed to see his greatest need. He failed to see his need for forgiveness of his sin, the wickedness of his heart. And again, how often do we want a Jesus of our own making? We want a Jesus who brings health and wealth and prosperity. We want a Jesus who is like a rabbit's foot, a genie in a bottle, a good luck charm. We want a Jesus who will make us look good. We want a Jesus who is J-E-S-U-S, -S, and like the t-shirt I saw the other day, J-E-S-U-S, printed across the front, and in the middle is the Superman symbol for the S. And I thought, how disrespectful to our Savior and Lord that he is brought down to the level of a superhero. My Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, is not Superman. He is God in the flesh. He is my savior. He is not some superhero who has the weakness of kryptonite, who changes himself into some average person throughout the week and then in some crisis rips off his shirt and puts on the 
uniform of a superhero. Is that all our Savior is? Is that all Christ is? He's an exercise plan that we sign up for. We get a membership to the local gym. Is that all Jesus is? We just sign up for him and we become a member of the Jesus plan? And Jesus just makes our life a little better? We just add him on? How sad that our Savior has been turned into a buddy, has been turned into a homeboy, as some people blasphemously refer to him as. Some of these so-called Christian rap artists that basically refer to our Savior and Lord as a homeboy that's disrespectful and sacrilegious and can I dare say blasphemous. And there were people that day putting down the palm branches, putting down the garments, and they wanted Jesus to be their hero, to fulfill their personal desires and destinies. And they saw nothing about their sinfulness and their wickedness and the depravity of their heart. And they missed the whole point. You know, there were disciples that day. We go from fulfilled prophecy to perplexed disciples. Prophecy fulfilled to perplexed disciples. You know, the disciples, while trusting Christ as their Savior, the disciples had some growing up to do in their faith. They misunderstood some things about Christ. We just read there not too long ago in John chapter number 12. These things, verse 16, understood not his disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of him and that they had done these things unto him. Like many of those crying out Hosanna as Christ entered the the city, the disciples, uh, even to some degree, they expected a political change. They expected to some degree an ushering in of the kingdom of God in a literal, physical, earthly sense. Yet they still believed. They trusted Christ as the Messiah, as their Savior. They had no desire to crucify him. They weren't hardened in unbelief, but their faith had a lot of growing up to do. They were struggling even in their understanding of what Christ had already been teaching them. Like in Mark 9, in verses 31 and 32, where Jesus said, For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not the saying, and were afraid to ask him. They had a lot of growing up in their faith still to do. They didn't quite understand that Christ had to die first. It didn't all make sense to them until after Christ rose again and ascended up into heaven. I know as being a former principal, and I'm still a teacher, I teach all the time, just in different ways. I don't hold a formal position as a teacher anymore. But there is something really exciting about a teacher when the student gets it, when the light bulb comes on. I love it. I love it when... Church people take a step of faith, grow up, get off of themselves or look beyond and see the needs of others and step out of their comfort zone or they just grow up in their faith. And that fruit of the Spirit begins to develop and you begin to see it and there's a life-changing grace of God experience. That is a joy for a pastor. Just like it's a joy for a teacher to see that light bulb come on, especially in math class or chemistry. Right, Dan? 
when that light bulb comes on, they finally understand how to balance that equation or that reaction or whatever it might be. And the student finally gets that good grade on that test and they come up excited. Look what I got. The teacher puts that big smiley face on and puts that sticker on the wall, with a pat on the back. Jesus longed for that in his disciples. They loved him. He was the Messiah to them. He was their savior. But Jesus longed for them to grow up and to see their faith in a fuller sense. And we long for that in our children, our grandchildren. I know even as a child, having a, a now as an adult, a fuller sense and appreciation for my mom and dad. As I mentioned earlier, with my kids now, sophomore in college, senior in high school, junior in high school, in eighth grade, as I'm feeling older and older every day, as I go through this stage of life, I'll tell you what, some light bulbs have come on in the last few years in appreciation for my mom and dad. They had to deal with this, with me? Why, they had a lot of patience with me. Oh, you mean my dad had to get up that early in the morning and had to do that late at night? And my mom and dad drove all over creation to basketball games and baseball games and practices, and they had to deal with my trombone squeaking, not squeaking, whatever a trombone does when it's not played right. And I have a whole new appreciation. There are some light bulbs that have come on. There have been some things in my life, in my maturity by the grace of God that I have recognized, wow, my mom and dad gave a lot. There have been a lot of people who have invested in my life, and I don't deserve any of it. And here's Christ, all of that as he comes in on that donkey, and he's weeping, tears are rolling down his face, and he's longing for even us right now. Grow up in our faith, to mature in our faith. To quit living in the, the shallows, in the superficiality, and to have the abundant life, and to live on higher grounds, and to live for the Lord. We are in a sin-cursed, evil, wicked world. And if we had any doubt, the election showed us when people will vote for politicians who want to murder children in the womb of their mother and trans and mutilate kids and rip kids out of the home because the parents say you're a boy or you're a girl, you're not going to be the other. All of the wickedness, it shows, sad to say, the morality of our nation when we will vote villains into office. What does that say about us? What does it say about the church? What does it say about where we're at as believers? And the work that God has given us to do to share the gospel and to love the Lord and obey him and to raise godly children to the best of our ability by his grace. And none of us are perfect at it. And sometimes our kids go the other way and they choose to do their own thing in spite of all that we've poured into them. And we still love them. We pray for them. and We desire for them to come back around. But God has given us so much and we have to mature in our faith, and we have to grow up in the Lord, and we have to live for him and serve him faithfully. Not be hypocritical palm branch layers and garment layers who don't really love the Lord, submit to him like we should. Finally, this morning, as we come to a close, we've already touched on this. We've not only seen 
prophecy fulfilled perplexed disciples, but also pharisaical murmuring. Pharisaical murmuring. The Pharisees murmured among themselves, frustrated at the attention Christ was receiving, fearing their plan would be foiled, fearing they would lose their control, their power, their wealth, their influence over the people, even to the point where they say the whole world has gone after him. Exaggerating, but showing their desperation and the evil of their hearts. So once again, we come to a close. What is our response to Christ? How do we see him? Is he just an add-on? Or is he our everything? Is he our all in all? Is he our portion, as the psalmist says? Portion being everything. Our whole life. Are we hypocritically bowing in reverence to him? Hoping he will be a good luck charm, a genie in the bottle, a rabbit's foot? just to give us everything we want? Or are we submitted to him, delighting ourselves in him, committing our ways unto him, trusting him to bring it to pass, humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord, allowing him to do the lifting up in his time and his plan? May we have a heart of true submission, seeing Christ as our Savior and humbly wanting to do his will, whatever that may be, living in obedience and not be hypocritical palm branch layers or garment layers, who in just a few days were crying out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. May we be wholehearted in our devotion to the Lord and our submission to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture that declares Christ as king. Not recognized at that time, not even recognized by all at this time. But Lord, we know that one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May, Lord, each and every one of us here this morning will recognize you right now as Savior and as Lord. Someone here does not know you as their Savior, Lord. May today be the day in which they confess their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that each of us as believers will once again be renewed in our commitment to see you high and lifted up, to see you as holy, holy, holy as the Lord God Almighty, and live in humble submission and obedience, doing your will, living our lives in service for you as living sacrifices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll look up this way, and if you'll look in the hymnal in front of you there, and if you'll find 731... And if you'll stand as our closing hymn, our hymn of dedication and invitation, hymn number.